when left unchecked or unbalanced, here's what happens with fear. Fear obliterates reality. When it's left unchecked, when fear is unbalanced, it obliterates reality. Anxiety then feeds on the leftover carcass decimated by the shrapnel of fear. That's, that's a lot in one sentence, but we're going to see it play out in 1 Peter chapter 5. Okay, now, now remember, last week, if you were here last week, we did a New Testament truth with an Old Testament example. We're going to do the same thing again today. If you're taking notes, there's going to be a lot. There are more slides on this one than I've ever had before on any other subject. And so there's going to be a lot on the screen today. We're going to give you, we're going to give you a lot of information. But my hope and my prayer is that by the time we're done, it leads to some pretty specific practical action steps in talking about anxiety. Um, Because there's a significant difference between experiencing moments of anxiety and living in anxiety. And you would know that to be true, especially if you're a person that has a tendency to live in anxiety, uh, that, that it's different than than that moment of anxiety. You know that moment when you take your child to college and you drop them off, you get them all set in, and and that stuff is just whirling around inside of you all the way until you get back home and realize you're going to make the room into a gym. And and so there's that moment of anxiety until there's this elation that you're empty nesting. And when they're done with college, you're getting a raise. And, And we've just... We are about to make our last payment over 12 years of college in this next month. And oh, my word, there's going to be a party come December in the Bartholomew house. There's some anxiety that's with that, but it's way different than when you live in anxiety. Anxiety is is a mental disease and issue. That's hard to say. And it's hard for people to sit there and go, I believe that to be true. That anxiety is a mental health condition. And it's exact issues, it's exact, uh, I I like to call them tentacles of anxiety. All of those are so vast and, and so expansive and so incredibly complex. And yet for some, anxiety is just merely an issue of faith. Now, I've said it last week. Listen closely to me this week. I I am not oversimplifying anxiety. I'm not oversimplifying the tentacles or the complexities of anxiety. I'm just saying that from our aspect and where we're going to go in God's word today, that some wrestle with anxiety in their life because of this. Because of what I've just said, the fact that anxiety has to do with our faith. And and, and when I say faith, I'm not talking about our saving faith, that moment that we give our life to Christ and He saves me and He keeps me. I'm not talking about that where we're questioning in our anxiety or in our struggle or in our battle that we're actually battling this idea that somewhere along the line I've lost my salvation or I'm going to lose my salvation. If that's a struggle for you, I'd love to talk to you about that. But, but when I'm talking about anxiety being an issue of faith, I'm talking about the faith that believes or trusts God even when you don't know the outcome. 
That's when anxiety hits so many of us. Anxiety hits so many of us when, when we struggle to say, I trust God even when I don't know the outcome. And that's easier said than done. New Testament truth, Old Testament example. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. For many, this will be a very familiar passage of Scripture. If you're new here, I want to encourage you to also be, oh, it is on the screen already. I'm going to read it here in just a moment. But before we do that, uh, I'd like to pray for us again because this is a big, uh, big topic, big subject. So if you'd close your eyes, bow your head with me and, and allow me to approach the throne of grace. I love this in Hebrews. Approach the throne of grace with confidence to call out for mercy in our time of need. So let me talk about that and, and as I pray. Heavenly Father, in this, uh, in this moment of, of getting into your word, your love letter to us, that um, it, it says uh, that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired by you and it's profitable for all this teaching and instructing and even correcting me and, and rebuking me and, and growing me so that this, this man of God could be made perfect. We don't look at this as a textbook, God. Forgive us if we look at it like it's some type of academic book. Forgive us if we, if we even think for a moment that this is like any other book on any other shelf. This is your word to us, and we will treat it with honor and respect, knowing that every word of God proves true. It's flawless, and you are a shield to those who take refuge in you. And we need it in this moment, in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 5, we'll start in verse 6. In fact, let's just back up a little bit to the last part of verse 5. It says, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And if you've been here any part of the last five years, I'm going to hope that you would at least remember that I've often talked about that phrase. There are very few things in the Bible where it says God opposes, but right here, God opposes something. He opposes the proud. But gives grace to the humble. And so in verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him, to God, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. A, a stamp of approval, a, a huge statement that Paul makes here at the end of 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. I want you this morning to see, uh, I want you to see a connection. I want you to see a relationship between humility and anxiety this morning. This may be new to some of you, but according to the text, I want you to see that relationship. I want you to see that that connection between humility and anxiety. So for just a moment here, I want us to lean into a little bit of a grammar lesson, okay? This just perked uh, Pastor Nick's heart. He's just like, oh, oh, this is going to be great. This will be the best part of the entire sermon. You're struggling right now. You had a win last night for LSU, and now I'm going to a grammar lesson. And he is so pumped uh, for this next section. Look what happens. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may lift you up or he may exalt you, casting your cares on him because he cares for you. Look at those two verses. 
If you have the New International Version, the NIV, those are two sentences. Humble yourselves and cast your cares on him. Okay? Now, it's an okay translation, but I do want to show you this. The ESV, other uh, New American Standard, that it says uh, that it's actually one sentence and with a comma where it's humble yourselves. So there's a difference there. And so I want to explain that. The original language of the New Testament is Greek. And in this moment, in this spot, these verses are actually one sentence. Now, through some translation work, the NIV has made it into two sentences, which has made it two commands or two imperatives. It says, humble yourselves and cast your cares. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal. And, and overall, it's not a, a very big deal. But there are two commands there according to uh, those who translated the NIV. But in the original text... It's Greek, and it's one sentence. And so what, it, what we have truly is one command or one imperative, and then this adverbial kind of participle out here that is, uh, you're going to love this, subordinate, subordinate, what a great word, to this command, humble yourselves. So a, a great way of saying these verses is humble yourselves by casting your cares. Humble yourselves while casting your cares. Humble yourselves as you cast your cares. I don't know if that's changed how you've thought of those verses, especially if you've been uh, a part of, of uh, studying your Bibles over a period of years. But, but if that's changed for you, that should make a pretty big difference. That you have one command, and then there's this connect. They're not separate things. Casting your cares on Him is part of humbling yourselves before God. And we're going to see that throughout the text this morning. That's the New Testament truth. Okay, We have this tendency to think that God's got enough on His plate to help me with my anxiety or my cares, and God's going to obliterate that this morning. So, Pastor Nick, how do I do? Does that, that feel good this morning? All right, good. That's a little bit of a grammar lesson. So I'm going, to, I'm going to share with you some things from Peter, some don'ts out of this passage when it comes to anxiety. Here's the first thing. Really simple, very practical today. Don't be arrogant. When dealing with anxiety, don't be arrogant because proud people trust themselves, they trust their systems, they trust their ability to handle it, but humble people trust God. I love this. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Love that quote by C.S. Lewis. People too proud will trust themselves or their systems or their ability to handle it. It says, humble yourselves before, therefore, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. I've probably read this text a thousand times or more in my lifetime, and I have consistently passed over that next phrase. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. I have, I have passed over that to get to the good news. All I have to do is cast my cares on him because he cares for me. But we missed a very important part, and I don't want you to miss this. And then we're going to go rather quickly through this next piece. But I, I want you to see under the mighty hand of God. What does that mean? Every time you see the right hand of God or the mighty hand of God, it's this, this powerful hand of sustaining. So I want to show you what the Bible says real quickly this morning. You'll just have to write this down and talk about it in your connection groups. 
I want to talk about real quickly, what does that mean under the mighty hand of God? So let me give you just a few things. God's hand creates. When we're talking about the mighty hand of God, God's hand creates. You find it in Isaiah, you find it in Psalm 139, that God is the only uncreated one. He is the creator of all things. And when we put ourselves under the mighty hand of God, we are saying He is our ultimate creator. Secondly, God's hand preserves. God's hand preserves. He's sustaining us. He didn't at your salvation just say, all right, I'm going to sustain you. He continually sustaining you. Colossians 1.7 says this, He has or He is before all things. You're talking about Jesus there. He is before all things. In Him, this is great, in Him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17, He preserves us. He sustains us. God's hand, third one, God's hand disciplines That's not a fun one. God's hand disciplines us. He's maturing us. Take some time. Read through Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. When David speaks to to his bones, wasting away inside of him until God had come to him and disciplined him and he was maturing him in Psalm 32. God's hand doesn't just discipline, God's hand provides. When we're talking about humbling ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, we're talking about a God who creates, preserves, disciplines, and provides. He's caring. He cares for you. Psalm 37, 24 and 25, He's near to the brokenhearted. The last one, God's hand grips. Not only does he sustain you and mature you and does he care for you, but he is securing you. Psalm 95, 1 through 7. Notice every single time in each one of these, we're in the book of the Psalms. Why? Because David wrote most of these. And I believe that David, quite honestly, in the middle of his, in the midst of his suffering, often struggled with anxiety in his life. And it's the beauty of the Psalms. The beauty of the Psalms is that often he's writing at the very beginning of a Psalm and talking about how dark his path is and how he's overcome by enemies. And he, and he, and he actually wants to see his enemies die. And you ever feel that? He just wants to see people die. And he's just in this very, very dark place. And then this thing happens inside of his mind. He takes every thought captive and he flips everything on its head and he looks to heaven and he recognizes God for who he is. And he recognizes that God is his creator and that God preserves and that God disciplines and he provides and he grips us, he secures us. But he does it by switching his thinking. Don't be arrogant. I can handle this. Everything's fine. I can get it worked out all on my own. Second thing in the text, don't be naive. Casting all your cares, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful because you have an adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone who he may devour. And you've heard me, if if you've been here for five years, you've heard me say this on multiple occasions. Please don't ever forget that Satan 
hates you and hates your family. He hates you and he hates your family. Don't be naive. Don't be naive that there isn't a power outside of ourselves that we are to be alert over, that that Satan hates you and he hates your family. Now, in the midst of anxiety, you have to be very, very careful here not to just simply blame Satan for everything, okay? We're going to get to that. We're going to start at a different place. We're going to start at a different place as we end today. (laughs) You just don't start there. This is absolutely true. You have an adversary, an enemy. He is the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He does, it's not surprising. He, he roars. There's not a surprise to that. Don't be naive. Here's another one. Don't be feeble. Don't be feeble. In your anxiety, don't be feeble. It says, resist him Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. Resist. Firm in your faith. Fight with Scripture. We talked about it last week. Take every thought captive. Philippians 4.8, whatsoever things are true or honorable, just, pure, lovely, or commendable. If you have any one of those experiences of any kind, think on these Things don't be feel. Peter's trying to help us to stand in the midst of our anxiety that we don't have to be feeble. And this is going to be tough. This one's tough because in our anxieties, we have a tendency to allow our anxieties to be debilitating. And this is tough. This is tough because. You can get tired of fighting. You can be worn down. I just want to give in. And you let your guard down around your heart. And Proverbs 4.23 just says, Above all else, with all diligence, guard your heart. For out of it are the very issues of life. Don't let your anxiety debilitate you. Don't isolate yourself. Don't isolate yourself. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 says, carry one another's burdens. Don't isolate yourself. We're still in verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, uh, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. Now, here's what Peter is not saying. Peter is not saying, hey, gather everybody else and let them wallow in your anxiety with you, <laughs> okay? You, you don't do, hey, could you guys just, I'm gonna, this is what's going on. I just wanna, could you, let's wallow together in our anxieties. That's not what he's saying there. He's saying, recognize this. In the midst of your anxiety, when you're feeling alone, you are not alone. That there are brothers and sisters in Christ that know exactly what you're going through. And I've told you over the last couple of weeks, I'm not sharing my story this time, but there was a point in time when I felt all alone. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, 
I hear of other pastors that have experienced the same exact thing that I've experienced. And it's actually, the Bible's actually true. You're not alone in your anxiety. Don't isolate yourself because we don't fight for victory, right? We don't fight for victory. We fight from a place of victory. Jesus has given us the victory because of the gospel. Don't isolate yourself. And then he says this, don't don't lose hope. And here comes this beautiful truth and promise. Actually, there's a couple of truths in here I'm going to share with you. But it gives you this beautiful promise in verse 10, which is so hard for those that live in anxiety to believe this to be true. And after, after, underline it, after, underline it, after, you have suffered a little while, underline it, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ Jesus. There it is. The hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there's more to this life than the moment that I'm in in that place where my struggle is overtaking my mind and my heart and my actions. The God of all grace who has called you to this eternal glory in Christ, will Himself. He's not calling on an angel. Not calling on a friend. He's, he Himself will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you to Him be the dominion forever. This is, this is the truth and the promise of God. Don't lose hope Whatever it is that you're in, whatever anxiety, whatever battle you are in, listen closely. It is temporary. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you find yourself in a place of battling constant anxiety, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 should be your best friend chapter. Not just to read, but to study it to meditate on it, and to learn from it. It's been a chapter that's been a huge help to my heart. Because in the beginning of chapter 4, I don't have time to read it, let me just kind of uh, summarize it a little bit. In the beginning of chapter 4, Paul talks about this glorious gospel that is the face of Jesus Christ. The gospel And then he says, we hold this treasure in jars of clay, this gospel within us. We hold this treasure within us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to talk about, we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and the same God who raised Jesus from the dead, which seems to be the thing that brings the most fear and anxiety in this world. The God that raised Jesus from the dead is the same God that's going to raise you from the dead. And then he says this in verse 16, So we do not lose heart. For though my outer body is wasting away, my inner body is being renewed day by day. Because this light, momentary affliction is preparing me for a greater weight of glory 
in Christ Jesus. And there's nothing to compare it. We don't look for the things that are seen, but for the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen, our circumstances, our relationships that are messed and broken, those things that are seen, they are transient. They're temporary. We look for the things that are unseen because they are eternal. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 should bring an unbelievable amount of hope to those who are battling anxiety as it has brought me hope. These are light momentary afflictions. Knowing that there's an eternal weight of glory and there's nothing that compares to it. What a promise. Now that's easier said than done and we, have, we actually don't have a whole lot of time left. Oh, I wish we could go an hour today, um, but we can't. Let's get to the Old Testament. First Corinthians, or, let's get to the Old Testament. Let's go to First Kings, okay? First Kings chapter 18 and 19, and we're going to look at the example of my favorite Old Testament character, Elijah. In James chapter 5, verse 17, it says that Elijah was a man just like us. Or Elijah, different translation, Elijah had the same passions or the same kinds of passions that we have. Now, that's inside the context of a man that prayed some powerful, faith-filled prayers. So here's, here's a man that lived by faith. He's actually a prophet of God, and he had lived through four kings in Israel. And this fourth king is a butt. Okay, this fourth, king, this fourth king, he is the worst king of all of them. His name is Ahab. And, and Ahab is a yellow-bellied sapsucker, and he's married to Queen Jezebel. She's the evil one, okay? He pretty much was the puppet to Jezebel. And in chapter 18, you see this epic. And when I say epic, I mean epic battle between Jehovah God, the God of Elijah, and the gods of Baal, or if you want to be cooler, the gods of Baal. I mean, it just makes you sound cooler when you say it like that, right? That, that's in 1 Kings chapter 18. But I want you to see something. I, I don't want you to miss it. I want you to see something in 1 Kings 18. We'll actually be in 1 Kings 19. But in 1 Kings 18, uh, verse 22, Elijah's getting ready to battle the 450 prophets of Baal, or prophets of Baal, Baal, and this is what he says in verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. That's not true. If you back up to chapter 18, there were earlier in 18, there were actually... Uh, hundreds of prophets that were kept safe in the caves. We have a problem. Elijah is a prophet of God, but he has just boasted arrogantly, and this is where it begins to unravel. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And already in this moment in Elijah, he's going to He's going to head into this epic battle, but he's going to do it from a place of arrogance. And you see it play out in the story. I don't have time to read it. You, you need to read it because, I mean, he makes fun of the Baals. He makes fun of the, uh, of the priests of Baal. I mean, he just flat, which is fun to read. Fun to read. But it's, it's quite possibly, according to the text, coming from this place of arrogance. And then everything just on. Wines. 
First Kings chapter 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Now, he had, they had destroyed, they had murdered all the prophets of Baal. Huge victory. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may, so may my gods, may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Jezebel says in the next 24 hours, I'm going to do to you what you did to my prophets, what you did to my priests. Look at verse 3. What's the next phrase? And Elijah was afraid. He had just tackled this mountaintop experience, this absolute high of of ministry victory, and in a moment, it shattered around him in fear. And we could be quick to judge him here. Dude, you just took on 450 prophets of Baal and you slaughtered them all, and now there's just one woman that wants to come after you, and and she's going to kill you? What in the world's going on? And that's exactly what we do when we don't understand anxiety. That's a person who doesn't understand anxiety. He quickly steps back and judges and says, look it, I can see it clearly. Elijah couldn't. Elijah couldn't see it clearly. And his fear quickly turns to despair. Uh, Verse 4a, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and he sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take take away my life for I'm no better than my father's. Fear quickly turns to despair. He just wants to end his life. And despair quickly moves to self-deprivation. I'm no better than my father's. So don't equate, because they're not equal, when battling anxiety, do not equate humility with self-deprivation. The e, let me give it to you this way. The Eeyore complex. Oh me. Oh my. Because all you're doing, and all, all I, I've experienced this, I've done this, is that if someone will just love me and pat me on the back and tell me everything's going to be okay, and it makes me feel better. So the more I feel bad about myself, the more I can feel better when others try to make me feel better. And it's a downward spiral of your anxiety. I've experienced it, and maybe, maybe you've experienced, but get this, God doesn't leave Elijah in his thoughts. God doesn't leave Elijah in his thoughts. He laid down, he slept under a broom tree, and you're like, exactly. In this story, you have to recognize that this is the downward spiral of watching fear turn to anxiety, turn to depression. And there's a difference between anxiety and depression. Anxiety keeps you awake, Depression, you don't want to wake up. And that's the difference here. Of course he's going to lay down by the broom tree and sleep. His adrenaline is gone. His faith and trust is gone. But God doesn't leave him there. God cares for him physically. I wish we had more time this morning to look at this story. God God cares for him physically. God reminds him through an angel that he needs to get up and he needs to eat because he's about to go on a journey. And he can't do this journey on his own. He can't do this journey on his own. 
Elijah is reminded that he's weak and he must depend on God for the journey. And when you're in the midst of your anxiety, not, you, you and I, we have to remember that in our weakness, we need to depend on God for the journey. Look at verse 8. Will you, just, will you hang with me a little bit longer today? This would be really mean to our kids' ministry upstairs. But if you'll just hang with me, this is just so important, okay? Uh, verse 8. Now I lost my train of thought because I did. Oh, yeah, verse 8. He says this. And he arose and he drank and went in strength for that, with that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. So this is really important. I want you to hear this. In your midst of anxiety, when anxiety has paralyzed you or you feel like it's paralyzed, you don't stay paralyzed. In those moments, you do what Elijah did. Elijah wasn't fixed. Elijah didn't feel better. Elijah still wasn't in the right frame of mind. You're going to see that later on in the text. Yet he got up and he obeyed God. He got up and he obeyed God. And then in verses 9 through 18, we have this incredible conversation with God, which is another reminder that in your moment when you're battling anxiety, how important it is to get your minds off of your Mind off of yourself, off of others, off of your circumstances, and get them fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Hebrews chapter 12. He has this conversation with God. And God is not in the fire, and God is not in the earthquake, and God is not in the wind, but God shows up to Elijah in this whisper. And that's exactly what you need in the midst of your anxieties. You just need God to whisper, saying, in the midst of your crazy in the midst of your circumstances, in the midst of your anxiety, God loves to show you who he is. I'm here for you. He asks Elijah a question twice. He says, why are you here? Elijah, why are you here on this mountain? Why are you here with me at Mount Horeb? And Elijah's thinking is still twisted. Read it. It's still twisted. He's still missing it. I only I am left. That Israel is all going to hell in a handbasket. It's terrible. He still doesn't have his mind in the right spot yet. And yet God doesn't chastise him. God tells Elijah, I'm not putting you on a shelf. And when you battle anxiety, sometimes you feel like God wants to put you on a shelf, and He doesn't. It's actually quite the opposite. He wants you to get mobile for Jesus. Physically, start serving others. Start serving others. Spiritually, saturate your mind with the Word of God. Memorize Bible verses that just come back and help you over and over if you're battling with anxiety, maybe somebody here needs to hear this today. It's okay. It is okay if you're battling anxiety. If, but if you're stuck and you're feeling paralyzed, beginning to think that God's put you on a shelf, I can tell you and guarantee you that God didn't put Elijah on the shelf. He shifted his ministry, but he didn't put him on a shelf. God's not putting you on a shelf. He's saying, get into the game. Get mobile because the gospel is full of hope. It transforms your life. So where do we start? We're going to go to a whole different passage of Scripture. If you get the time uh, in your connecting group, read through that story. It is epic. Where do we start? Let's go back to the Psalms. 
Psalm 139, the very beginning of it, has this beautiful, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But by the time we get to the last two verses of Psalm 139, uh, David takes a little bit of a spin, a little bit of a twist. And he says this, and I'm going to use the NIV here because the NIV actually is a better translation uh, than uh, the ESV. I know that's weird for me to say that, but uh, I've said it out loud. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. That's where it gets important. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You want a place to start? If you're battling anxiety or you know someone who's battling anxiety, please, this, this, isn't, this isn't the cure-all. I said this is a place to start. I'm not minimizing those who struggle with anxiety, okay? I haven't shared my whole story. If you'd like to hear my whole story, if you'd like to talk through that, I'll do that with you. love to do that with you. Another important series of verses right here. David is saying to God, search me, O God, and know my heart and know my anxious thoughts. Wait a minute. Uh, Didn't we earlier say that God is the creator, God is a sustainer, sustainer, God's a provider, God's a discipliner? God disciplines all of that stuff. And, and, And yet now David's saying, search me, O God. He's not saying, we know, we know the context of that, right? That he's not saying, God, since you don't know what's going on in my mind, you don't know what's going on in my heart, since you don't know what's going on in my feel free to search me. That's not what David is saying. David's actually getting his mind in the right spot. David's actually putting his mind in the place of humility. He's putting his mind in the place of submission under the mighty hand of God. And he's opening up his heart and he's saying, search me. Search me, the God of the universe, and he's opening this prayer communication with God saying, search me and know my heart. We're made in the image of God, intellect, emotion, and will, and David uses all three of them here. He says, know my heart, know my thoughts, know my mind, know my will, my decisions. If you want a place to start, if you're in a battle Against anxiety, this is the place to start. Open up your heart and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Know my emotions. See if there's any hidden sins or presumptuous sins. This isn't always, listen, listen carefully, this isn't always the cause of your anxiety, but this is a great place to start. Open your heart and allow God to search. He says, he says, uh, and know, uh, test me and know my anxious thoughts. Know, know my mind. God, I'm opening my mind to you. Take, I want you to take every thought captive. What am I putting into my mind? This is so hard for me. That, that, uh, um, when I was in my battle, the hardest part of my battle against anxiety, I, mean, I couldn't watch anything on TV. And, and, and this is going to sound really troubling and really harsh, uh, but, but, but for those of us that think we can watch whatever we want and it's not going to affect us, you're ignorant. And you're foolish to think that it doesn't matter what you're putting into your mind. David's saying, search my mind. Whatever it is I'm watching on TV, whatever it is I'm secretly looking at on the computer, whatever it is I'm trying to compare myself 
to others, right? I'm, I'm spending so much time on, on this thing that we have in our pockets. We, some of this, it's, it's in my pocket. Some of you have it glued to your hands. I, I saw this trick. There's a pastor that showed me this trick. This is, I have an iPhone, and the reason I have an iPhone is because Androids really don't exist. I have this iPhone here. I found out this really, really cool trick. If I hold this button down, and I slide this, look what happens. It shuts my phone off. Some of you have to slow down your minds and take every thought captive. Are you willing to say, search my mind? For this last one, (laughs) search my life. See if there be any offensive way, NIV, grievous way, ESV, wicked way, King James. God, just look at my life. Am I making poor decisions? Have I made bad decisions? Is this anxiety because of decisions that I made? Search me. And then there's this incredible flip of the switch. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. In that moment when you open up your heart, your mind, and your life to God, then you say this, lead me in the way everlasting. There's the switch. David knew that there was a transforming hope of Jesus that went way past this world to a point in time when he will stand before God. And this life is just this slight momentary affliction. And God has promised, he has promised to himself, restore, confirm, establish, and strengthen you. And here's what's crazy. In the beginning of that part in verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 5, He says this, and this is when he's going to do it. So at the proper time, he may exalt you. (laughs) uh, I'm going to say this. That's where we suck the most. We want it to be done in our time. We want this fix to be taken care of in our timing. Sometime, anytime. But Paul said, God's going to do it at the proper time. 